who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hello, welcome to Strong Sense of Place. In each episode, we focus on one destination and discuss what makes it different than any other place on Earth. Then we recommend five books we love that took us there on the page. I'm Melissa Jolwan. I'm David Humphreys. We're going around the world one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. Today we get curious about amusement parks. In Two Truths and a Lie, we'll talk about dress-up day at Disneyland. Fun. Yeah, and then we'll talk about five books we love. I'm recommending a book that will make you want to time travel to 1911 Coney Island immediately. I would do that anyway. <laughs> I've got a book that suggests we should all be having a lot more fun. I mean, I'm into that. I am in favor of that categorically, yes. But first, Mel's going to bring us up to speed with the Amusement Park 101. For the 101 today, I thought we'd take a roller coaster ride through the history of amusement parks. But before we get into that, a quick word about terminology. An amusement park features attractions like games, thrill rides, shows, and other entertainment, usually outside with some kind of gate around it. Sure. A theme park has all of that too, but everything, the visual design, the language, the music, the action of the rides, is unified with a theme. Theme parks are all about immersing visitors into a story to create a rich experience. So a carnival is an amusement park? Correct. But Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom, that's a theme park. Yes. It's kind of like that all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares thing. Yeah, because all theme parks are amusement parks. Yes. Sabrina Mittenmeyer is the author of the book, A Cultural History of the Disneyland Theme Parks. She said, themes are about getting away from the everyday and disappearing into a different world. There's no time to think about your silly little problems when your body is flying through the air against all odds. <laughs> the very first amusement park kind of had a theme, if honoring a saint counts as a theme. That's a stretch, but okay, let's go with it. The proto-amusement park is generally thought to be Bartholomew Fair in London. 
It was first held in August of 1133. Whoa. And it was a rip-roaring good time if you were into St. Bartholomew and the cloth trade. By the 1700s, the bolts of wool had been pushed aside at Bartholomew Fair, and it had everything you could want in a spectacle. Tumblers, acrobats, and tightrope walkers. Exotic animals, boxing competitions, strongmen, and puppet shows. Waxworks, dancing bears, performing monkeys, and astrologers. There were also small thrill rides and musical extravaganzas and a blindfolded pig that could tell the time to the minute and pick out any specific card in a deck. I'm very skeptical about the pig, but I do want to see the carnival. There's an illustration of everything I just described. I will put it in show notes. It's as exuberant as you want it to be. All of this eventually proved to be way too much for conservative middle-class Londoners. The fair was denounced as a school of vice, which has initiated more youth into the habits of villainy than Newgate itself. Newgate was a notorious prison. The fair was worse than the prison. (laughs) The final Bartholomew Fair was held in 1855. R.I.P. Meanwhile, in Denmark, two public gardens were adding amusements to their sculpted flower beds to create destinations for thrill-seekers. The world's oldest still-running amusement park is back in in Copenhagen. It started as a hunting reserve in the 16th century, and its spring waters were rumored to have mystical healing powers. But not for the things they were hunting, I'm guessing. In 1756, King Frederick V opened the park to the public, and he added food stalls and entertaining things like clowns, singers, jugglers, and mimes. Not too long after, when steam power became the sexy new technology, Bakken had the first steam-powered carousel. And its wooden roller coaster was built in 1932, and you can still ride it today. Whoa, really? Yeah. Also still there, the white-faced mime named Piero. He's been making appearances in the park consistently for more than 200 years. That is an old mime. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's not the same mime, Dave. Is he miming, help me, I have to get up? (laughs) Is he a ghost mime? (laughs) That'd be amazing. Across the city of Copenhagen is Tivoli Gardens. That was founded in 1843 with this compelling argument. When the people are amusing themselves, they do not think about politics. (laughs) (laughs) The Romans learned that, Mm -hmm. and it's been true ever since. Bread and circuses. Tivoli is equal parts pleasure garden and amusement park. It's built alongside of a lake with beautiful lush trees. There's a Victorian glass hall, a white Moorish palace with onion domes, and a Chinese tower that lights up with red and green lights at night. It's also home to many roller coasters and a musical carousel that is exactly what you want in your old-timey merry-go-round. Kind of looks like a two-layer cake, and there's all kind of gilded bits and bobs, and there are ornate flowered horses, And there's a canopy that's painted with images of Venice. Now we're going to jump across the ocean. The World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, also known as the Chicago World's Fair, introduced 27 million people to what a theme park could be. Its big innovation was a fun zone called the Midway. There was electric lighting and hot dogs and Cracker Jacks. There were thrill rides, including the debut of the Ferris wheel. Yeah. 
and there were pavilions representing countries from around the world with costume performers and music. The fair was intentionally designed to be immersive and transportive. Scott Lucas is the author of the book Theme Park, and he says that the fair showed people could visit other places while staying in one spot, essentially traveling without having to travel. That is a strong sense of place. If I could time travel, the Chicago World's Fair would be, I think, in my top 10 places to go. We could go back to 1893, go to the Chicago World's Fair, and stick around until 1911 to go to Coney Island. Love it. Which brings me to Coney Island. (laughs) Yeah. Perched on the boardwalk right next to the Atlantic Ocean in Brooklyn, New York, Coney Island was a little bit seedy and a lot of fun. Coney Island astonished, delighted, and appalled the nation and took America from the Victorian age into the modern world. At its height in the early 1900s, Coney Island featured three competing amusement parks, Luna Park, Dreamland, and Steeplechase Park. You could float down a replica of Venice's Grand Canal, take a submarine ride based on the novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, visit an imitation 15th century German village that was populated by 300 little people. Wow. Mm -hmm. and ride a human roulette wheel that tossed riders around and sometimes on top of each other, which gave men and women an excuse to grab onto each other at a time when physical contact was not really allowed. I've got another one for you. For decades, you could go to Coney Island and watch premature babies incubating. I read about that. It's in one of the books I'm talking about later. The incubation room. Yeah. At the amusement park. Yeah. Wow. Sure. (laughs) Times have changed. (laughs) Not everyone enjoyed Coney Island. The Russian writer Maxim Gorky, who was nominated five times for the Nobel Prize in Literature, visited Coney Island in the summer of 1906. He wrote gorgeous descriptions of Coney Island at night. I want to read you a little sample. Okay. With the advent of night, a fantastic city, all of fire, suddenly rises from the ocean into the sky. Thousands of ruddy sparks glimmer in the darkness, lining in fine, sensitive outline on the black background of the sky, shapely towers of miraculous castles, palaces, and temples. Golden gossamer threads tremble in the air. They intertwine in transparent, flaming patterns, then flutter and melt away, in love with their own beauty mirrored in the waters. That's a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. The majority of his essay makes Golden Age Coney Island sound amazing. And magical. I felt like he was trying to make it sound bad, but it was just making it sound awesome. <laughs> but then it takes a turn and becomes very overtly negative. He is super judgy of the people that throng the boardwalk and the entrepreneurs who created it. Mean panderers to debase tastes unfold the disgusting nakedness of their falsehood. The naivete of their shrewdness, the hypocrisy and insatiable force of their greed. The precaution has been taken to blind the people, and they drink in the vile poison with silent rapture. The poison contaminates their souls. Wow. Yeah, he hated it. He did. He called it hell multiple (laughs) times. I feel like maybe he needed to take a dip in the sea and eat a hot dog and kind of get in the spirit of the whole enterprise. Or maybe recognize that this just wasn't for him. (laughs) Maybe amusement parks aren't your thing, Maxim. I will, of course, link to that essay in the show notes because 
it is amazing. Yeah. Coney Island also featured the Switchback Railway, which was the first roller coaster at Coney Island. For five cents, you could climb a tower and take a seat on what was essentially a bench that was pushed off the tower to glide over rolling hills to another tower 600 feet away. The car, such as it was, traveled at just over six miles an hour or about 10 kilometers an hour. For reference, that's about half as fast as the average bicyclist rides. (laughs) The coaster was inspired, by the way, by a ride designed by none other than Catherine the Great of Russia. Really? Yes. In the late 1700s, it was really popular pastime in St. Petersburg to build a huge pile of snow and then build a tower next to it. And you would climb the tower and sled down the snowy hill. Catherine wanted to be able to do that in the summer. So she had a track designed with a cart with wheels so that you would climb up the tower and then ride a cart with wheels down. And she had a pavilion built next door so that after her friends went gliding, they could have a cup of tea. It kind of figures that she was an adrenaline junkie. (laughs) It kind of does. Eventually, this golden age of amusement parks declined thanks to fires, the Great Depression, and the advent of TV. Until a man you may have heard of named Walt Disney, decided to combine the technology and magic of movies, television, and theme parks to create a universe of delight. On July 17, 1955, Disneyland opens its gates to the public in Anaheim, California. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. According to reports, it was not the happiest place on Earth that day. Yeah, that first day was a little bit of a disaster. What I remember is they had something like four or five times the number of people that they were thinking they would have. Do you know why? In part because there were counterfeit tickets. Yeah. And also because people were climbing over the gate. The freeway was backed up and some of the rides weren't working. They weren't really ready to be open. They ran out of food and drinks and they had just poured the asphalt and it was 100 degrees. So people's shoes were getting stuck. As an example of how they weren't prepared, there's a story about how they hadn't pulled the weeds in some parts of the park. Oh my gosh, that would never happen now. Right. So Walt Disney's solution was to post the Latin name of the weeds next to the weed. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) What an amazing creative mind he had. That's like so playful and awesome. Yeah. So even though things went wrong, you cannot overshadow the Disney magic. No. It will prevail. As guests walk through the entrance of Main Street, USA, towards Sleeping Beauty's castle, they were invited to enter Frontierland. Frontierland. Tall tales and true from the legendary past. Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland. Promise of things to come. Adventureland. Adventureland. The wonder world of nature's own realm. And Fantasyland. Fantasyland. The happiest kingdom of them all. I love all of that. Yeah. In his dedication, Walt said, Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. That got out of hand. (laughs) It did. I'm just going to do a really quick run through of some of the amazing theme parks that are out there now. Okay. Universal Studios all over the world. Yep. Six Flags, Legoland, Knott's Berry Farm, Disney's Magic Kingdom, and the Animal Kingdom, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, 
Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, Pixar Pier, Disneyland Paris, Tokyo Disney Sea, and the original Disneyland. Plus, there are about 600 or so regional amusement parks across the USA. And now, shout out to my old school summer hangout, Hershey Park, and its three roller coasters. The classic wooden coaster called the Comet, which is very, very rattly, and that I rode for the first time with my dad. And I'm pretty sure I was mad at him because I was really scared. But then I loved the Comet. The Super Duper Looper, which was the first looping roller coaster on the East Coast, and the Steel Trailblazer that I rode repeatedly with my best friend, Renee. I have a lot of affection for Kings Island, which was the amusement park I grew up closest to, and the Beast. World's, the Beast. The world's largest wooden roller coaster. Might still be. It was at the time. Wooden coasters. Yeah. Terrifying and awesome. Yes. The best is when you go over the little hill and your butt comes up out of the sea just a little <laughs> bit. Just a little thing. Yeah. That's the Amusement Parks 101. Okay. So let's, you've already started, but let's talk about Disney Parks now, I have spent some time trying to understand how big the Disney Parks operation is. It is challenging to do that. So let's start here. Do you know how many Disney Parks there are? Twelve. That's right. There are 12 parks in six different resorts. Walt Disney World in Orlando has four parks, the Magic Kingdom, Epcot, Animal Kingdom, and Hollywood Studios. There are two more in California, two in France two in Tokyo, there's another in Hong Kong, and one more in Shanghai. Before I did the research for the show, I did not know that Tokyo Disney Sea existed. And then I read an impassioned blog entry titled, 10 Reasons Tokyo Disney Sea is Disney's Best Park. And now we're going to Japan next year. I'm so excited. <laughs> I just learned about Tokyo Disney Sea too. That looks amazing. It does. I mean, we should just say right up front, we are Disney people. We've gone to Disney twice as adults. And sometimes I still think about when we met Tigger and I was very giddy and I was like 49. <laughs> and I was freaking out about Tigger. Yeah. One of the author's arguments on that blog I read for Tokyo Disney Sea was about how their Americana is better than Disneyland's Americana. <laughs> the heading for that paragraph is it does America better. <laughs> I would like to see that. The Disney parks are shocking in size and scope and attention to detail. Disney World alone is about the size of San Francisco. Wow, I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah. So we're talking about a corporation owning a piece of land that is the size of a major metropolitan city. Mm -hmm. The resort is its own municipality. So they control the local liquor license, the fire departments, the emergency services. It is a corporate city-state. Over 75,000 people work there. Wow. They commute there every day. <laughs> it is the world's largest single-site employer. Hmm. 2,500 people work in costume design alone. Oh, that's pretty cool. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Mickey is said to have almost 300 different outfits. Oh, I want to see that closet. <laughs> there is also a massive underground tunnel system at the park. It's so large and complex that one writer described it this way. He said that when you're visiting the Magic Kingdom, 
you're really on the second floor of a vast building. And an estimated 58 million people visited Walt Disney World in 2021. For scope, that's about half again as many people as visited Manhattan that year. (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. Like you said, we've been to and enjoyed Disney World, but I understand not liking Disney or theme parks or the possibly saccharine cuteness of the place or the rampant capitalism. If you just give yourself over to it, though, it's so much fun. It can be, right? Yeah. I feel like it really depends on who you are. Yeah. The Disney parks are just an astonishing artifact of our time. If civilization collapsed today in 10,000 years, the survivors would assume we had a very active religion centered on a mouse. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you three statements about Disney parks. Two of these are true. One of them is not. Mel doesn't know which one is the lie. Here are the three statements. One, Doritos were invented at Disneyland. Come on. (laughs) Two, Disney has a plan for a park themed around its villains. Oh, I can only hope that's true. The park is called the Dark Kingdom. Yes, I'm in. And three, both U.S. Disney parks have dress-up days where thousands of people attend in vintage-inspired attire. That's really fun. Yeah. From the top, one at a time, Doritos are invented at Disneyland. I'm going to say that's a lie. Really? Yes. That's true. Darn it. There's a little controversy about this. There are two competing theories, but I'm going to go true with this. When Disneyland opened, there was a Mexican-ish restaurant on New Orleans Street called Casa de Fritos. (laughs) Very authentic. Yeah, that was run by the Fritos company, so you can imagine how authentic they were. The story is that a marketing executive, his name was Arch West, he saw that they were getting rid of stale tortillas by frying them up and serving them as chips. Because delicious. Yeah, and he took that idea and he ran with it. Frito-Lay introduced taco-flavored Doritos in 1968, and then what we consider the classic original nacho cheese flavor in 1974. And there have since been over 180 varieties, according to taquitos.net. Those variations include the latest Doritos hot mustard. Mm, No, hard pass. I'm into it. And Doritos spicy garlic. Maybe. Yeah, I would like to try both of those. Oh, and when that marketing executive passed, Arch West, his family spread a layer of Doritos over his urn before they buried it. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Just in case you need a little snack for his transport to the next world. (laughs) So, two, Disney has a plan for a park themed around its villains. The park is called the Dark Kingdom. Please tell me that's true. So, the internet has buzzed for years about this idea, almost since there was an internet In 1989, Tim Berners-Lee invents the internet, and 10 minutes later, he got an email, hey, have you heard about the Dark Kingdom? (laughs) Historical fact. So first, we should say Disney has a glorious roster of villains. There's Maleficent, the witch from Sleeping Beauty, who's been played by Angelina Jolie. The puppy hunter, Cruella de Vil, who's been played by Glenn Close and Emma Stone. (laughs) Ursula, the octopus lady from The Little Mermaid, Captain Hook. Jafar, Scar, Gaston, Oogie Boogie, the Queen of Hearts, and on and on. And it would be freaking awesome to have a theme park dedicated to those characters. 
A roller coaster could take you through the Night on Bald Mountain sequence from Fantasia, finally bringing you face-to-face with Chernabog, the mountain-sized demon. There could be food that looks like poisonous apples and (laughs) so much good merch. In my head, the store looks like an improved and supersized hot topic. (laughs) And it would all be set around a ruined castle that darkly mirrors the one in the Magic Kingdom. Disney has also played with this idea. They had special Disney villain after-hours events for a while for a fee, of course. You could stay late at the park. And the villains had a special show and a dark parade, and they had unlimited refreshments, soda and ice cream, so you could pursue the monster of gluttony if you wanted. They modified the rides a bit. So, for instance, there was a a live Barbosa over the bridge for the Pirates of the Caribbean. We seem to have lost villains after dark to COVID, sadly. Mm, Yeah. There's hope it'll return. But according to people in the know, Disney historians and a couple of Imagineers, The Dark Kingdom is an idea wholly fabricated from the internet that hope springs eternal. Maleficent's my girl. Yeah. But that means that three is true. (laughs) Dress-ups. Both U.S. Disney parks have dress-up days where thousands of people attend in vintage-inspired attire. That is true. It's delightfully true. It's called Dapper Day. Dapper Day. Yep. It started in 2011 when a designer from Fargo, North Dakota, landed in L.A. His name is Justin Jorgensen. He himself is dapper. He likes dressing up in colorful suits and such. And he was kind of mooning a bit over the old 1960s pictures of Disneyland, where people look sharp while visiting the rides. And he wanted to recreate that. So he just picked a day, and significantly a day when it was a bit chill so people could wear layers comfortably. And it was a Sunday in February of 2011. He did not dictate a dress code. He's in favor of people celebrating their own personal style. Nice. Just dress up. And he invited the retired military to attend in their dress uniforms. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. And that day, about 100 people showed up. Word got out. Instagram pictures happened. People wanted in. He did it again in September. About 450 people made it then. And they did it again and again, and it grew and it grew. In spring of 2017, they got an estimated 25 to 30,000 people. Amazing. (laughs) All looking sharp at Disneyland. That would be so much fun to see. Yeah. Dapper Day has expanded in several ways since then. There is a Dapper Day Expo at Disneyland. <laughs> Vendors sell vintage and contemporary clothing and accessories. Sometimes there's a book signing or beauty demos. Swing bands play. It bills itself as the biggest style celebration in California. Dapper Day has also expanded to Disney World and Disney Paris. They've had events at the L.A. County Museum of Art, the L.A. Opera, and the Natural History Museum. If you're curious, the fall events are coming up. They are going to be at a vintage amusement park in Paris in September, which sounds fantastic. And the expo is returning to Disneyland in November. We will put the link in our show notes. That's two truths and a lie. That is amazing. Isn't that great? I'm ready to get my hair in a retro style and buy a really cute dress. I'm hoping to go and pick up a nice orange or purple suit or something. Are you ready to talk about books? I am. And before I get into my primary book recommendations, I want to talk very briefly about a few of my favorite books set in amusement parks that I've mentioned in previous shows. 
First is Joyland by Stephen King. Yeah. I didn't talk about this on our show. I recommended it on an episode of What Should I Read Next with Anne Bogle. Yeah, last summer we went on Anne's show to talk about books with a strong sense of summer. You talked about ice cream. I did. I talked about the Ben and Jerry's ice cream book, which also has a strong sense of an amusement park. It does. We'll put a link to that show in show notes. Yeah. But back to Joyland. Don't be put off by Stephen King's name on the spine if you don't like horror novels. This is a bittersweet coming-of-age story with an eerie atmosphere. It is spooky. It's not gory or overtly scary. Yeah. There's a little... A little ghostiness. Yeah, there's a little hint. There's a little touch there. Yeah. It's set in an amusement park by the beach in North Carolina in 1973. A college student with literary aspirations takes a job wearing the furry costume of Howie the Happy Hound, and then he gets caught up in an old mystery surrounding the park. It's got a lot of feelings in it. I really love it. Next up, Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Oh, yeah. If you've never read the book on which the awesome movie is based, please treat yourself. This is a perfect summer read. We are talking about an amusement park terrorized by T-Rex and raptors. What else do you need? I think I've said this before, but it's rare that both the book and the movie are excellent examples of books and movies. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those cases. Agree. The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson is a thrilling account of the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Such a good book. It reads like a novel with tons of suspense and great characterization, but it's all true. And if you want to get the over-the-top amusement park vibe of the Chicago World's Fair, that book is a great way to do it. It would be a good pair with the book I'm going to talk about next. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And finally, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Technically, it's about a traveling carnival that comes to town. But the plot is driven by a magical carousel. So I'm giving it special dispensation to be mentioned here. It's a modern Gothic classic about small-town America and how the lives of two boys are changed forever by a sinister showman and a spooky carousel. The perfect time of year to read that book is about the first week of October. Agree. So maybe put that on your TBR for then. All right, now on to my formal recommendations. My first pick is The Rabbit Factor by Antti Tamainen and translated by David Haxton. This is a comedy thriller set in modern Helsinki. It's the funniest book you'll ever read about an accidental murder committed by an insurance actuary. <laughs> All right. In case you're not familiar, an actuary has very, very good advanced math skills and uses them to analyze the financial costs of risk and uncertainty. Our hero, Henry, is an excellent actuary, and this makes him pretty terrible with people. He has less than zero people skills. He is the dark hole of people skills. Mm. At one point, someone says to him, you know how it is. And he replies, I'm not at all sure I do. In my experience, automatic assumptions regarding the proportionality of things often lead us astray. He's not wrong. <laughs> Numbers and logic are really his thing. Yeah. He says that at the age of 42, he had only one deeply held wish. He wanted everything to be sensible. Ah. Uh, yeah. You can see where this is going. Yeah. He had been content in his insurance company job, but his company recently moved into a new space and the new office has an open floor plan that brings him into way too much contact with his coworkers. 
he goes on at great length about how annoying it is that there are like casual conversations going on now when they're supposed to be working with numbers. And his new department manager, who took the job that Henry wanted, has a very touchy-feely approach to teamwork. He wants everyone to talk about their feelings, and he's instituted practices to make them emotionally connect with each other. And Henry's just like, what is happening? (laughs) Poor guy. What does that have to do with math? Yeah. So he reaches his breaking point. And he's basically given the choice of accepting what's a demotion or getting on board with the team. And he creates his own third option and he quits. Oh. Which is very shocking to him. Yeah. (laughs) Because suddenly he's like, where am I going to go tomorrow morning? Yeah. And then things get worse. His brother dies suddenly and Henry inherits his brother's adventure park. What? Yes. It's called You Me Fun. And it's got climbing walls, ropes, slides, labyrinths, that kind of thing. There's a lot of climbing and jumping involved. That doesn't sound like Henry's thing at all. It really doesn't. So he takes himself out to Yumi Fun to break the news to the staff that their boss is dead and he's in charge now. And he finds himself among just a crew of quirky people in this really brightly colored, noisy, completely unmathematical environment. And then he pretty quickly figures out that there's something fishy and probably criminal going on at Yumi Fun, and he's got to get to the bottom of it. So much for his wish that everything will be sensible. Yeah. This book combines elements of a coming-of-age story, a crime caper, and a workplace comedy. The employees and the relationships reminded me a little bit of the TV show The Office or Parks and Rec. But the tone is more like the TV show Barry. Although what we're Barry is black. This is more pastel colored. Okay. For example, a giant hard plastic rabbit plays a significant role in the plot. Okay. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that this book has the pacing of a crime novel. It has very good like forward momentum and very exciting action scenes. There are car chases and foot chases and knife fights and very serious threats from extremely dangerous people. Really? Yes. And somehow, even though it's violent, it's also very silly and gleeful. It's really amazingly done. I'm not sure how he pulled it off. The Times called the author Antitaminen the funniest writer in Europe. And I think I've talked about this before on the show. I don't usually read funny on the page as funny. But I really did with this book. There were times when I whooped out loud. Very entertaining. But at the heart of the story is Henry's growth as a human. I felt very warmly toward him. He's very unusual and sometimes accidentally offensive, but somehow also very endearing, like you're rooting for him the whole time. Taking over the adventure park forces him to interact with messy, complicated, unpredictable people. He has to talk to them, and he has to consider their feelings, and it's all so confusing. And most confusing of all is the manager of the park. Her name is Laura. She's really an artist, but life being what it is, she works at Yumi Fun to pay the bills. She's warm and playful. In my imagination, she's played by the actress Jennifer Coolidge. A little bit wacky, but good-hearted. Yep. She completely turns Henry's world upside down. She makes him think about art, and that gives him feelings about art. 
and he's literally dumbstruck by the things she says and does. He's just shocked by all the unfamiliar emotions he's experiencing. He's confused almost all the time, and it is very delightful. When I was doing my research, I learned that Amazon Studios is doing an adaptation of the book that will star Steve Carell, and that totally makes sense, and I can't wait to see it. If you read this and you have an affection for Henry like I do, there are two follow-up books, The Moose Paradox, which came out last year, and the final book, The Beaver Theory, will be published in October. This is The Rabbit Factor by Antti Tuminen, and it was translated by David Haxton. My first book is Curious Toys by Elizabeth Hand. Ooh, I wanted to read this one. It's a good one. This is a book that's equal parts coming-of-age murder mystery and historical fiction. Yes, I love all of those things together. Yes. The story starts in 1915. It's set in an amusement park in Chicago called Riverview Park. It centers around a girl. Pin is her name. She's the daughter of the park's fortune teller. They are barely scraping by, the two of them. Pin has a sister, but that sister has vanished. And as a result, Pin's mother wants Pin to dress as a boy because it's safer that way. Mm. And Pin agrees in part because she enjoys the freedom. As a boy, she can go where she wants. We saw that in the book, The Gods of Tango, that I read for the Argentina episode, where suddenly she could go out at night and she didn't have to look over her shoulder everywhere she went. She could be unescorted. Yeah, it's the same here. Pin is a very charming drug runner. She delivers marijuana and hash for Max, who works at the park. Max performs as Max and Maxine, she-male. For his act, he dresses as a woman on his left side and a man on his right, and then spins from one side to another. And he talks to the audience in both personas. And there were sort of equal amounts of curiosity and horror at this for the audience in 1915. Mm-hmm. Pin's job takes her all over Chicago. She visits a jazz club, a university. She visits vaudeville shows. But she particularly enjoys visiting the movie studios just a short distance from the park. They're called SNA Studios. They are a black and white film studio. They're cranking out shorts with printed title cards. And then one day, Pin is hanging around the park and she sees something. A man and a young girl, she's maybe 12, they enter a dark ride called Hell's Gate is a slightly spooky tunnel of love. Mm-hmm. Couples used to go in there to get a little time alone. The man and the girl get in a small two-seat boat to enter. The boat floats off into the ride. And then when it comes out, there is no young girl anymore. Oh, saw that coming. Yeah. That's no good. Yeah. And that's where the central mystery starts for the story. Pin soon finds an unlucky ally in her hunt to solve this crime. His name is Henry Darger. Henry is eccentric. He introduces himself as a protector of children. We're never quite sure how much we can trust him. Mm-hmm. Is he dangerous or is he just odd? But he also is the only adult who believes Pin. So that's act one right there. So I'm going to stop and rewind a little bit. Many of the elements in that story are true. They existed. Riverview Park was an amusement park in Chicago. It did have a ride called Hell's Gate. The park itself existed from 1904 until 1967. There was a movie studio called SNA. Charlie Chaplin worked there for a couple of years, significantly when this book is set. He invented his character, the Tramp, at SNA before he moved to L.A. Neat. And Chaplin shows up in the book. 
SNA, the studio, is believed to be the first place where anyone filmed a pie in the face gag. <laughs> and then there's Henry Darger. Henry Darger was an artist who was a custodian at a hospital in Chicago for most of his life. Shortly before he died in 1973, his landlord discovered Henry had been working on a book. It was a 15,000-page fantasy story that he had also lavishly illustrated. 15,000 pages. Yes. There are also hundreds of watercolors to go with the book. Wow. His landlord, who was himself an artist, decided that people needed to know about Henry and his work. And that's how Henry Darger posthumously became one of America's most famous folk artists. Hmm. This book introduced me to Henry Darger, and I'm richer for it. If you're curious, Google his work. It is equal parts beautiful and sinister. Darger, the real Darger, was particularly fascinated by the murder of a young girl in 1911. And significantly, there are only three pictures in existence of Henry Darger, and two of them were taken at Riverview Park. Wow. Yeah. So, we've got a very rich and, to me at least, delicious intermingling of story and fact. And the author, Elizabeth Hand, spent about 10 years researching Chicago of 1915 and all the component parts. And it's on the page. She's going to tell you about it, and she does that well. And there's a lot in this book to like. There's a strong sense of Chicago in 1915 and an exploration of that time, which I enjoyed. There's Pip's coming-of-age story. She sort of starts out barely visible to others. She doesn't even have the vocabulary to talk about what she wants. And she gradually works to become a person of agency. There's the crime story, which was well told. This is a dark ride, but for me, it never went too far off the path. And then there are themes about how the delights of amusement parks and movies relieved the poverty of that age and brought together people who would go on to change the 20th century. If that sounds like something you're interested in, the book is called Curious Toys by Elizabeth Hand. I also want to mention that the author, Elizabeth Hand, has a series of murder mysteries featuring a photographer who covered the punk scene in New York City in the 1970s. Oh, cool. Yeah. People have compared her detective to Stieg Larsson's Elizabeth Salander. I'm curious to give him a try. My second recommendation is Dreamland by Nancy Bilio. And honestly, it sounds like it would be a really good pair read with the book you just talked about. This is a historical mystery set in 1911 at the Dreamland Amusement Park in Coney Island. If you like stories about terrible rich people and plucky heroines, this is the book for you. Our heroine is 20-year-old Peggy Battenberg, and our introduction was love at first sight for me. She's working at the Moonrise Bookstore in Manhattan. She's an assistant clerk, which means she's mostly relegated to paperwork on the second floor. But every once in a while, she's invited downstairs to the main floor where she can mingle with the customers and walk among the bookshelves. She says, To descend those narrow stairs was as thrilling for me as a sachet across the stage would be for a newly cast Ziegfeld showgirl. Each click of my heel on those steps sent my heart racing. That's nice. Yeah, it's really sweet. But soon, we learn that Peggy is not only an excellent bookish heroine, she is the heiress to a prominent robber baron family. She's the granddaughter of one of the richest men in America. He's in the same class as, say, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, and the Vanderbilts. These terribly rich and generally terrible relatives of hers have plans for the summer. 
Yeah. She will not be working at the bookstore, which is the summer of her dreams. Instead, her sister Lydia has been engaged to her wealthy beau for far too long. She needs to lock down that relationship. The family's master plan is to decamp to the posh Oriental Hotel on Manhattan Beach for the summer with all hands on deck, including Peggy. The two families will sun and swim and dine together. They'll form familial bonds, the fiancé will swoon, and a wedding date will finally be set. Lydia's future and the legacy of the Battenberg family will be secured. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Yeah. As it turns out, plenty. Yeah. Starting with Manhattan Beach is being terrorized by a serial killer. Oh. On Peggy's arrival, she practically stumbles on the first victim, a young girl found strangled under a pier. Oh. And Peggy doesn't set out to be an amateur sleuth, but pretty soon she's caught up in the crime and she has quite the summer. Peggy is my sweet rebel princess. In no particular order, she falls spectacularly in love, defies her family, tangles with the police, and mingles with Coney Island's underworld. When she's too hot in her ridiculous bathing costume that covers, like, every part of her body, she cuts it up to expose her legs. She scandalizes her family by drinking Coca-Cola from the bottle. (laughs) That tramp. And she routinely sneaks out unchaperoned during the day and at night. Unheard of. I'm aghast. The author, Nancy Bilio, was a magazine editor for Rolling Stone and Entertainment Weekly before becoming a historical novelist. So she knows how to keep the pace moving. Yeah. And she does a really good job weaving period details into the story without just dumping research onto the page. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting history about the contrast between the fancy hotels on the beach, which were at one end of the boardwalk, and the amusements of Coney Island, which were at the other end, and had security guards in between to keep the riffraff on the right side. And major events of the day, like the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire and the heat wave of 1911 and futuristic art, all play a part in the story. Some of the characters are based on real people, but I don't want to spoil the fun by name-dropping them. That happened in Curious Toys as well. The author's note at the end of the book is a treasure because it explains who everyone is based on and what her inspiration for the story was. It's really fun. There's also a very strong sense of place. I want to read you the opening paragraph. Okay. The Phantom City vanished an hour after midnight. The one million lights of dreamland darkened as they always did with a clang as loud as a cannon shot, followed by a long wheezing gush. The rides, the attractions, the sideshows, the restaurants, the dance hall, the entire 15-acre fairgrounds stretching from the canals of Venice to Lilliput, all of it had been shut down for the night. Once they'd thrown the switch on the light panels, it didn't take long for the heat created by the electric bulbs to dissipate, replaced by the cool, salt-flavored ocean breeze. But the smell of the fairground hung on. Nothing could drive away the scent of stale popcorn, roasted peanuts, taffy and cotton candy, fried crab, boiled corn and beer, mingling with the odor of greasy machinery and the rank human sweat. That was the fragrance of Coney Island, and no one ever forgot it. That's really good. I mean, time travel me back there right now. Yeah. Even though I'd have to wear a corset. This is an excellent summer read with an endearing heroine and a few characters that you will love to hate. The murder mystery is resolved in a very satisfying way, 
And I really like the way it's interwoven with Peggy's coming-of-age story. Plus, there's a big reveal at the end that I didn't see coming, and it hit me straight in the feelings. That's Dreamland by Nancy Bilio. I want to quickly mention another novel that would also be a good read with this one. It's called The Museum of Extraordinary Things by Alice Hoffman. It's also set at Coney Island in 1911, and it tells the story of Coralie, a mermaid in her father's boardwalk freak show. It's very atmospheric, and it weaves romance, mystery, and magic. My second book is Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World by Stephen Johnson. This book presents an idea that I love. The idea is that delight is an essential driver of historical change. Play is a key to progress. If you want to see the future, go where people are having fun. That's a really nice idea. Isn't it? For instance, the first chapter is about fashion. Johnson tells the story about how before about 1500, Northern Europeans wore clothes of wool and linen exclusively. Yes. Thick, scratchy, plain wool. And you can imagine what wool underwear was like. (laughs) Unpleasant. Yeah. Now, some civilizations had discovered cotton by then, and Indian dyers, after thousands of years of experimentation, had realized that you could dye vivid colors and patterns into cotton. They had invented chintz and calico. Mm -hmm. And in the late 1400s, Vasco da Gama brought some of that back from the West Indies. Just let's for a second pause and think about seeing cloth with patterns on it for the first time. (laughs) It's amazing. Right? Holding cotton to your face for the first time after a lifetime of wool. Mm -hmm. What kind of strange magic that would be. (laughs) And there it is, right? That moment of delight. And at first, some people complained a bit. You can't wear this in our heavy weather, right? But then someone realized you could wear the cotton on the bottom and the wool on the top. Ta-da! Yep, now it's essential. So at the height of the calico trade, the fabric was 80% of the East India Company's imports. Wow. Yeah, 80%. Throw the ivory and the gold over there. We've got calico to get in here. Forget that opium stuff. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. And all of this has an unintended consequence. Well, many, but let's talk about this one. (laughs) Wool dropped in favor, and now the wool trade is in danger and Big Yarn is angry. Pamphlets and essays are written denouncing those calico madams. (laughs) That's what they were called. Calico madams. Name of my punk band. (laughs) Songs were written. One of them had the lyric, None shall be thought a more scandalous slut than a tawdry calico madam. Slut? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very judgy. Rioting weavers marched on Parliament. Laws were written. There was a ban on imported dyed calicos. Every generation has its variation of video games will ruin our children. In the 1500s, it was calico. (laughs) But other people thought, what if we made the calico here? And from that, we get a generation of mechanical tools that mass produce cotton, including Eli Whitney's cotton gin and the early steam engines. And from there, we get industrial machinery and trains. And the delight of cotton and fabric patterns leads England into the Industrial Revolution, which reshapes the world. All because people wanted some nice, soft, colorful clothing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And not always for the better, of course, right? The Industrial Revolution brought its own set of problems. For instance, we are still walking with the racism the cotton trade brought to the United States. 
But the rise of calico also brings with it the rise of fashion. Which pattern are we wearing this season? I was shocked to read that the annual fashion cycle started in the 1780s. (laughs) And that, too, was a threat to some. How can we tell the middle class from the aristocracy if they're wearing the same thing? Which ultimately changes attitudes about that kind of thing. This book, Wonderland, goes through six different subjects. There's fashion, music, food, illusion, games, and public spaces. And talks about how they developed, how they changed the world, and how they all start with people being delighted. There are so many lovely stories in this book. Johnson writes about how every clove on earth started from a chain of islands off of the coast of Indonesia. And how in 1700 BCE, a trade network had transported those cloves 6,000 miles. (laughs) That's before maps and compasses. Johnson takes us to Baghdad at the height of the Islamic Golden Age to describe the fantastic toys they made there, uh, robotic elephants and singing fountains and things like that. And he draws a line from there to the invention of computers. He introduces us to a 16th century Italian gambler and rake who figures out the fundamental laws of probability and talks about how that influences insurance and airplane design today. This book is... Not specifically about amusement parks. It's a little bit of a cheat that way. He only spends a small time talking about them. But the chapters describe many parts of an amusement park. Uh, Fashion, music, food, illusion, games, Mm -hmm. public space. And I enjoyed what it did to my head, too, thinking about delight. What if we lived in a world that globally recognized delight and play as a critical, significant part of life? Not just a pastime, but a worthy pursuit. What if you turned on CNN and the reporters said, 100,000 people were suddenly delighted today. (laughs) I enjoyed this book very much. It is rich with great stories about innovation and fun, and I found the central premise kind of thrilling, really. It's Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World by Stephen Johnson. My final recommendation is Fantastic Land by Mike Bakovin. And I just feel like I have to note this show has Dreamland, Wonderland, and Fantastic Land. (laughs) And I also recommended Joyland. That would be a fantastic reading project. It is. You could just go through all the lands and then Mm -hmm. Alice in Wonderland, just to top it off. Fantastic Land, maybe not so fantastic as we're about to find out. Oh, no? This is a disaster novel set in a modern theme park in hurricane-ravaged Florida. Before I get into the setup of the story, we need to talk about the setting. Okay. Welcome to Fantastic Land a massive theme park that's competitive with Universal and Disney. It's divided into six different areas. The Golden Street, which is like Main Street USA at Disney World. Fairy Prairie, Fantastic Future World, Hero Haven, World Circus, and Pirate Cove. Everything is themed to the max. The food in each area is different. The music, the uniforms on the workers, even the smells. In the Pirate Cove, they pipe in the smell of seawater. And the fairy prairie smells like cotton candy. Every detail has been thought through for a totally immersive experience. So did the author want to say Magic Kingdom without saying Magic Kingdom? No, it's very clear in the book that Disneyland and Universal both exist. Fantastic Land is a third park. Okay. And significantly, Fantastic Land is closer to the ocean than the other two. That's going to prove to be a fatal mistake. The book opens with a faux author's note explaining that on September 15th, 2017, 
Florida was hit by the most powerful hurricane in its history. The storm and the subsequent flooding took out power grids and destroyed inland businesses and left thousands of people homeless. The National Guard and the Red Cross were called into action. But there were so many crises throughout the state, they had to prioritize who and where they helped. Yeah. And according to the Fantastic Land Management, there was a solid disaster plan in place for the park. Guests were evacuated, and 326 employees stayed behind to monitor and protect the park. They'd been trained, and they were prepared for every eventuality, except they totally weren't. This is the story of how social order and friendships and humanity completely broke down at Fantastic Land in the aftermath of the storm. There's plenty of food and water in the park. They are stocked up. They have enough to last everyone for a month. But because of a series of mishaps, trust is destroyed among the employees almost immediately. And then they all retreat to the areas of the park where they worked before the storm, and they form tribes. The employees of Pirate Cove turn into actual pirates. The crew from a hero haven become the Deadpools. The girls who work in the stores on Golden Street dub themselves the Shop Girls, one word, with an intercap G, and they transform into a tough girl gang. And that kind of thing happens in every area of the park. So this is kind of um, Lord of the Flies leaning. Lord of the Flies mashed up with the Warriors, yeah. Okay. And they're all left to their own devices because everyone outside thinks they're safe. The National Guard and the Red Cross have been assured that the people in the park have supplies and a plan, so they take their rescue services elsewhere, and Fantastic Land just devolves into a war zone. What I loved so much about this book is that the story unfolds through a series of interviews that are conducted well after the crisis has passed. Each interviewee tells a different part of the story, and they each have distinct voices, and sometimes... They seem a little unreliable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Max Brooks' World War Z did a very similar thing where you're talking to different people and you're getting a larger picture, but you're not really sure if it's an accurate picture. Mm -hmm. The first person we hear from is a historian who lays out the background of Fantastic Land to put the whole thing in context. Then a representative of the Red Cross explains how everything went so wrong with the storm predictions and the rescue efforts. There's a dad who talks about being at the park and having to evacuate with his family. And it gets really gritty when the testimonials from employees start. These are kids. They're college students. They're people who've just graduated from high school enjoying their last summer of freedom. And the way these young people are transformed from normal teenagers to armed renegades is chilling. It's also very compelling. <laughs> it's got a strong, like, can't-look-away yeah. energy to it. Yeah. Some of it is pretty gory. I'm not going to share specific examples for people who are sensitive listeners, but just know if you don't like some blood and guts, you not probably won't enjoy this book. Yeah. But it's also very entertaining and unsettling, <laughs> like all those things at once. It's really well done. And I had to keep reminding myself that it's a novel, not an actual nonfiction account. The way that decency unravels and tribalism takes over was both shocking and also made me go, oh, yeah, I could totally <laughs> see it happening that way. Yeah, totally plausible. Yeah. So it probably goes without saying this is a pretty dark ride, but I just loved the format so much. 
The author, Mike Bakovin, does an amazing job managing all of these different characters. Each interviewee feels like a real person, like the variance in their speech patterns and their vernacular, their attitude, how reliable they seem. They all feel like real people. And in their accounts, there's a handful of recurring characters of people left in the park, a particularly bad pirate, a really terrible manager. They're very well drawn. There are a lot of villains, a couple of sympathetic characters. I'm going to go no heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the historian at the beginning. Yeah. I read this book on the page. But a bunch of reviews that I read later recommended the audiobook. Oh. It's performed by two actors, and according to reports, the voice work is excellent. If you like crime stories or you were super into Lord of the Flies in high school, you will probably love this book. It's Fantastic Land by Mike Bakovin. Those are a whole bunch of books that we love set in amusement parks. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. We will show you the work of Henry Darger. I'm excited to see that. And we'll point you to Dapper Day, which I am very excited about. I've also got a YouTube video of the top 10 theme parks in Europe and the entirety of that amazing essay by Maxim Gorky. You can find all of that in our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com. And there's also a handy link in the show notes of your podcast player. You can just click on that and it will take you straight there. This is our last episode of the season. Season five, successfully coming to a close. Yeah, so thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of it. We are going to be on break for a little while to prepare for season six. If you'd like to have influence over the destinations we cover next season, you might want to join our Patreon. For just $3 a month, you can push us around and tell us what to do. (laughs) If you want us to keep going, uh, help us out a little bit. A little bit of a programming note. We'll still be delivering the Library of Lost Time every Friday. Yep. And I'll be writing my weekly newsletter that's filled with book chat, recipes, and other stuff that catches my fancy. That newsletter is free. You can sign up at strongsenseofplace.com. And then you get a love letter from me every Friday. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I live with Mel. And I still enjoy getting her newsletter every Friday. (laughs) And I never know what I'm going to write until the moment I start typing. So it's a surprise to all of us. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. 